Welcome to Biomechanics on Our Minds. My name is Melissa Boswell. And I'm Hannah O'Day, and we're PhD students at Stanford University. This podcast is brought to you by the International Society of Biomechanics. It's, it's time, time for Boom. Welcome to Boom. We have Biomechanics on Our Minds. Boom. 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 Welcome to episode, what episode is this? I don't even know. It says 31, but I I don't know. 31, I think it's 29. (laughs) Who knows? Welcome to another episode of Biomechanics on Our Minds. (laughs) I'm Melissa. And I'm Hannah. And we have another awesome biomechanics episode for you. Yeah, today we got to talk to Sahana Kake, who is really awesome and works as a program director at the National Institute of Health in Maryland slash DC. And we actually were lucky to meet her through an alumni panel that our lab hosts to help show current members of the lab what it looks like when you're outside the lab and have moved on to the next position that you're at. It's nice to have those because we bring in people that are both in and out of academics and have different types of jobs. And so when we met Sahana in this panel, we thought that her job just sounded so interesting at the National Institute of Health. So we reached out to her and had a conversation where we were able to learn more about it and also some cool ideas that she has. And we hope that you enjoy this interview. But before we do that, we're going to start off with a bit of boom. Bit of boom. Bit of boom. All right, we have a couple bits of boom for you today. The first one was a cool paper that came out in June 2020 in Gait and Posture, and the title is called Let's Take the Dog for a Gait. Authors are Gil, Keenan, King. So this paper was addressed the fact that the term gait has become synonymous with walking, in biomechanics and they're often used interchangeably and actually like this made me think like am I doing that myself like because I think it is really common for gait to like just be used for walking and so they define gait as the pattern of locomotion but not locomotion itself and in the study they looked at a bunch of different titles of studies that address locomotion and whether and how they use the word gait And so they found that about half of the the studies quantified the form of locomotion, like walking or running, and then the other half used the word gait to just describe the task. Most of them within the text then clarified the form of locomotion, either like in the abstract or the main text, but they found that in the title, they just used the word gait to describe the locomotion generally. They were using gait for both running and walking and maybe things in between. Yeah, so they weren't using what it was specifically. So I think maybe they were saying that, like, when you use the word gait, you're losing, like, the specificity of what the experiment was. But I think it's a cool paper on how the use of the right terminology for the right concept is important. And it can also allow for better search strategies when researchers are looking for our particular tasks and just like consistency in general. 
Yeah, but the article is not open source, and we also need oh. some more of that in our lives. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. But uh, you can go on and read the abstract and I think get the gist of the points that they're trying to make about differentiating between <laughs> gait and walking and knowing to when to use which one. Yeah, I wonder if there was any like historical evolution of it or if it just got like I feel like often a word like starts meaning one thing and then evolves through time as meaning multiple things or if it was just kind of it always was this a little bit ambiguous term and mm. interesting. Yeah, I don't know. It'd be interesting to like do more of a timeline study on like right when that started to happen. I also just love their title. Like it really makes a point and it's funny. <laughs> like let's take a dog for a gate. Yeah. <laughs> it's really great. And it I remember so Melissa's been really awesome in sharing literature with our lab. And she shared this and I thought that she got the title wrong when she shared. I was like, this seems like wrong. Like, <laughs> did she mean to put something else? <laughs> and then I was like, well, nope, this is exactly what it's about. I was so confused. <laughs> so yeah, it definitely stands out and achieves its purpose. It makes me want to use more creative titles, that's for sure. Yeah. I think one of our past lab mates is super creative. One of his abstracts is a limerick, like a poem. And I oh my that's gosh, that's beautiful. Pretty impressive. That up and share that sometime. And share it. Yeah. That. Okay. Next bit of boom. So since we're talking with someone at the NIH, the National Institute of Health, I thought it'd be kind of cool to talk a little bit more about that. I actually didn't know how old it was. It was founded in 1870. And it's now the largest biomedical research agency in the world with over 20,000 employees yeah. who both... So they must be celebrating their 150th birthday this year. Yes. There's a name for that, but I forget what it is like when you celebrate. It's like something centennial. But anyway, happy birthday. Happy 150 <laughs> <laughs> to the NIH. <laughs> I think it's cool how they have research, I think they have about like 6,000 of those employees are just dedicated to conducting research. And then the others are responsible for helping to support research in a variety of different areas. They do everything from human disease, looking at causes, diagnoses, things like that, mechanisms, to exploring like biological effects of environmental toxins. And so it's cool how they just span this wide range. And they're also working really to develop and support exchange of information in medicine and health and make that available to the public in a really precise and thorough way. Yeah, that's cool. It was fun to learn more about Sahana's role in the NIH, but it seems like they do so much. So it would be interesting to learn about some of the other roles that people have. And I think it'd be, it's kind of cool. It's like a different kind of science where, like you have big industries that might have comparable amounts of people but or universities, but like it's cool to have such a big institute that's dedicated to such a wide range of things but isn't just a certain medical device or a range of medical devices or isn't right academic. Yeah. Right. But how like all these different things still like support their com their like mission. Exactly. Exactly. Thanks. Thanks for sharing those fun facts. <laughs> I have a fun fact that I learned this morning. I don't I'm know excited. if you know this. I'm Maybe this is like this. something that everyone knows. 
But I did not know that when a caterpillar turns into a butterfly, it literally, like all of its organs are completely replaced with new organs. Like it's a totally new creature. And I feel like I've always thought like, oh, it just kind of like shrinks <laughs> and grows some way. <laughs> but like the whole thing goes away and forms a whole new thing. So Whoa. I just found that to be really fascinating. I was just going to say like, if it has any, well, I don't know how, what, what, however many neurons a butterfly has, but like, I wonder if it, you know, like, does it have any it's sense brain. of like, yeah. Or does like it have a brain? Who, who it used to be yeah. before it how turned it into gone. a butterfly. <laughs> like, stay grounded, okay? Know your roots. <laughs> it remembers those awkward teenage years. <laughs> yeah, where all I did was eat. That's, like, the same as my teenage years. <laughs> all I wanted to do was eat. I am a no little confused, life. Melissa why you called this Melissa surprise random face as oh. your bedroom. <laughs> I misspelled random fact but I wrote face. <laughs> <laughs> this is my surprise random face. <laughs> you couldn't just see so you know that looks random. like her her normal face just so everyone <laughs> knows what that was. <laughs> <Rude. laughs> I also <laughs> learned that mom caterpillars like lay their eggs on a plant that like they know that the monarch butterflies lay mm-hmm. their eggs on on leaves that they know that their baby caterpillars are going to like the most. And the wow. whole thing was just about how change can be scary, but like with patience and letting things be, it can be a beautiful thing. So wow. I don't want to forget that message in there. <laughs> What a beautiful, yeah, thank you. That's awesome. It's such a cool fact, <laughs> married with such a great message. So, yeah. Um, wow. Imagine that. I'm going to tell people that new fact. So, I remember we learned about butterflies in like third grade or something. And I remember they like, they eat something that's like super poisonous. Like, I think if you eat a butterfly, it's like bad because like they eat stuff that's poisonous. <laughs> well, uh, sorry, if you eat a caterpillar. The butterflies, I think, just eat something like, you know, they're on the diet. They they just eat oh. sugar water or something. Like so that. wait <laughs> till they're a caterpillar for their butterfly but when to they, eat yeah. them. Like you said, mom deposits them on some delicious thing. And I think that delicious thing is poisonous <laughs> <laughs> to everyone but Good them. <laughs> <to> no. <laughs> so mom, yeah, mom's got a good strat. <laughs> All right. Well, we will jump into our interview, but first we just wanted to quickly, in the interview, we refer, we probably refer to Nimble, which is the neuromuscular biomechanics lab that we're in at Stanford. So we just wanted to clarify that. And like when we refer to Scott, we are referring to our advisor, Scott Delp, because I think sometimes we just refer to some ambiguous Scott and... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's our <laughs> mutual advisor with Zahana, so. And Nimble is N-M-B-L, not like Nimble the word, like Jack B. Nimble. <laughs> <laughs> In case that was unclear. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for clarifying. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, great. So let's jump on in. 
Today we're talking to Sahana Kuke, who works at the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke at the National Institutes of Health. And specifically, she's the program director of neural engineering in the Division of Neuroscience. And we were really excited to have Sahana join us on the alumni panel for our lab meeting in Scott's lab. So that was really exciting. And we're really happy to have you on today. Thank you. It's nice to be with you. Yeah, thank you for talking with us. Yeah, it was fun to hear a bit about your story when we had a panel of, so sometimes our, the neuromuscular biomechanics lab, which is the lab Hannah and I are in right now, has a panel of alum from the lab who are working in different areas. And so we learned a lot about your position and through that. And so we're excited to talk about that today. But we were wondering first if you could share with us when you were first interested in biomechanics or why you chose to be a biomechanist. Yeah, sure. So actually, it is because of Scott Delp. He was my professor my senior year in college. I went to Northwestern and he was there at the time. And I took his class in biomechanics. That kind of blew my mind because it was like the perfect blend of math and engineering and health sciences. I really couldn't resist learning more about it. So it was really the start. It's the thing that actually that class is probably what inspired me to go to grad school next. I mean, I had always thought about it before, but I hadn't really thought too deeply about what I would do. And just learning about human movement, I think, was the trigger to to keep going in graduate school. So it was around then that I guess senior year in college that I got interested in it. Did you have any other career interests before that or something that you thought you might go into before biomechanics? I was also kind of interested in prosthetics and orthotics, which is a pretty common statement for an undergraduate bioengineer. <laughs> a large portion of us have that in our minds because that might be one of the only practical applications I would have seen as a high school student. So I, I sort of had that interest in the back of my mind, but I didn't really know what I would make of it career-wise. And I had actually gone to college in a BS PhD program, but partway through the BS decided I wasn't going to do the PhD right away. Part of it was not knowing what I would want to do. And actually, I was kind of seriously interested in fluid mechanics until I took this biomechanics class. And I thought, oh, there's some interesting solid mechanics too. Yeah. So I didn't really know. I didn't really know. And, and frankly, even going to do a master's degree next, I wasn't thinking practically yet about a career or, or like a end job. <laughs> I was just sort of following my academic interests, I guess, at that point. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. Sometimes I feel like we're pressured to like, I have a career in mind already, but sometimes I think just following those curiosities can lead you to a career eventually in something that you're interested in. Right. I mean, it leads you somewhere and then you can stand back and look and, and then take stock at some point. But at such a young age, it's difficult because you don't have much life experience yet. Right. So it's kind of, yeah, all of this stuff can be said in retrospect. It's at that point, it's, it's all sort of open. Yeah. And I liked what you said about like not even knowing something existed. A lot of times I feel like the things that we end up loving are things that we just couldn't even imagine. Right. Like people do this. Wow. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah. It's like, how did I not know about this before? I remember Scott had, uh, he probably does it all the time, even now, or I don't know if he teaches the undergraduate biomechanics class any longer, but he had us write a paper and we had to pick something 
I don't remember, like just something of interest to us and, and then do a biomechanical analysis of it. And I was a dancer at that point in time. And so it was really fun because I thought, oh my gosh, I can write this paper about the ankle joint <laughs> during dance. And it was acceptable and interesting. And it, it just sort of made sense. Like you didn't have to study something that was outside your body. Yeah, right. And that's what I love when I love talking about biomechanics, like everyone can relate because they have something they enjoy doing or some kind of movement. Absolutely. And you often find that the people that end up in this field are runners or just some kind of activity or they have a problem with one of their joints. So if there's some connection with the body, which is compelling. Yeah. Everyone always jokes that I think our lab is very athletic. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I fit that bill, but (laughs) (laughs) I do agree with it though. But I think, yeah, at the biomechanics conferences too, there's a lot of like organized running and athletic activities (laughs) at the conferences. (laughs) Well, sometimes you have to be in it to appreciate it. So it just gives you a closer tie. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Thanks for sharing all those experiences with us as well. After college, what did your career trajectory look like after discovering you liked biomechanics? Well, so at that point, I decided to apply to Case Western Reserve University for my master's. And I applied to a few other places, but really, I just wanted to go to Case because they had a really excellent neural engineering program. And I thought, as I mentioned before, I I had always thought about orthotics and prosthetics. And the thing there is neuroprostheses. And it just, again, sort of like this deeper world that I didn't know existed. And and I really kind of had my heart set on it. And it worked out. And I went there, I visited. So I moved there right after college. And I studied there for two years for my master's. And after that was over, I was not really sure what I was going to do. And I should, I should mention at the end of that experience, I got married. So my husband and I were living in Cleveland and he was a grad student at Case as well at the time and he wasn't done yet. So I was going to be there and I had a really good relationship with my master's mentor, Ron Friolo. And so I started working in his lab as a lab engineer. There were a number of different grants that he had going through the VA Medical Center. So I worked there in the lab as sort of a, I guess, a rehab engineer while my husband was finishing his master's. So it kind of kept me in the loop. It kept me in the field. It kept us going but I didn't really have a great big plan yet, I guess, worked out there. And at some point after my husband graduated, we were thinking, you know, wouldn't it be nice to go to California? We just sort of had that in our minds. And it so happened that Scott came to Case Western to give a talk. By that time, Scott had gone to Stanford and he gave his talk. And at the end of it, I was like, oh, I wanted to go and say hello to him because I hadn't seen him in two or four years or however long it had been. And I asked him at that point, hey, my husband and I are thinking about moving to California. Do you know anyone who needs someone to do something in their lab? And he was like, well, I think I might. I'll let you know. And sure enough, after a couple of emails and phone calls and interviews and visits, I ended up getting a job with another professor at Stanford who Scott knew, Terry Sanger. He was in the Department of Neurology and Neurological Sciences. And we ended up moving to California and I started working in Terry's lab as sort of like a lab engineer, lab manager kind of person, similar to what I had done at Case. But now it was in the field of pediatric movement disorders and it was like a whole new world of 
neuroscience. I loved it. I loved it too. And I decided after a couple of years that I thought I want to do this for real, so I better get my PhD. So I applied at Stanford. And and at that point, I only applied to Stanford because I thought if I'm going to do this, I want to do this in pediatric movement disorders right here. And by then, my husband was working in the area and, and we were living there. So I got my PhD. So like this, my I was sort of tripping along my life, <laughs> enjoying it. And what happened in the middle of that PhD, I had I had two of my kids. The one, I was pregnant during my quals. I remember that vividly because I was sick. (laughs) Yeah, I was drinking ginger ale the whole time just to try to keep my stomach down. And then the second one, I was pregnant during my defense, my PhD dissertation defense. So they were both with me at very critical points in time. Yeah, it's so interesting to hear the story and how initially you went into like a BS PhD program, but then you decided you didn't want to do that, but then you had like various positions and roles that eventually like led you to your PhD. And I also liked that, you know, it was kind of, Scott came to Case Western and you hadn't met him before, but you still took the initiative to ask him if there are any positions at Stanford. And even though there wasn't, there weren't any in maybe his lab at the time, he, you were able to connect with someone that way. Absolutely. I mean, this whole thing about networking being like the central, uh, I think it's it's probably the only way I made progress in my career (laughs) because I can trace back in some way or the other. Every opportunity was linked to some other prior experience or some other person or group of people who connected me to that. Yeah, it is very important to talk to people, especially at those points of transition. It kind of helps relieve some of the pressure of people thinking like they have to have everything planned out from the start because <laughs> it's it's really is about working along that path. So I got my PhD 10 years after I got my bachelor's and there was a moment when I thought, wow, I could have just done this like I don't know, seven years ago, if I stayed with it <laughs> while I was <laughs> but then I wouldn't have known what I learned and so I would have never had a chance to live in Cleveland which I loved and all those things. So- That kind of makes me think about the PhD process in general. It's like, it takes five or six years to do it. And then at the end, I feel like I hear a lot of the times like, well, if I knew then what I knew now, like, I think it would have only taken me like a year (laughs) to like redo that again. I also like hearing you talk about Cleveland because I'm from Cleveland. So it's, oh, how nice. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm from Akron, but it's fun to hear you talk about the good things. (laughs) Because it doesn't always get the best reputation, but it's great. <laughs> I know. It's it's just, it's so sad. And I grew up in, uh, I was born in New York and I grew up in New Jersey. And frankly, people from where I came from don't think highly of Ohio or Cleveland. <laughs> so whenever I'd be like, you know, I live in Cleveland and with a smile, they'd be like, oh, I'm sorry. And I would think, <laughs> no, you don't get it. You don't get it. <laughs> I like this place. It's so true. And it's funny too, because even like the city Akron, where I'm from, like not in California, like a lot of people haven't even heard of Akron before. And, or they'll say, oh, that's where LeBron James is from. (laughs) (laughs) And you, right? (laughs) And me, just a girl from Akron. (laughs) Every time I meet someone from Akron, I'm like, do you know Melissa? (laughs) (laughs) That's great. One day you will find someone who does. That'll be a great moment. Chances are high, usually. (laughs) She knows everyone. (laughs) So after your PhD, you ventured into your career in 
government work, right? No, actually, I um I continued on with first, sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I actually I did a postdoc next, but I think that was another. There was a little bit of a, I think there was about a year's gap between my PhD and the postdoc because I had just had my second child. And at this point now we had to move all four of us, which included finding daycare and all that stuff and my husband getting a job there. And so it was a really tough transition for our family. And I was talking to my postdoc mentor at NIH and she was really wonderful and said, well, if you can't come this year, come in six months or come in nine months or when you can come. So she was really wonderful and kept it open for me. So I was able to kind of spend the first, I guess, the rest of my pregnancy and the first six months of my daughter's life in California. And then we moved to Maryland to the NIH for my postdoc. There's a lot of those moments of really great mentors expressing compassion for people. Was she someone that you met during your PhD? She was. So let's see how I can explain this. My PhD mentor had created a, or was the leader of a task force on childhood motor disorders. And it's an NIH task force that was created and it ran for about 10 years. And they had a number of different goals and they would meet annually and there were kind of subgroups and, and meetings. And from that, they published a few papers, consensus papers, and made some definitions and things that were useful to the community. And Diane Damiano, who was this mentor of mine, was a member of that task force. And my PhD advisor, Terry Sanger, had included me in all of the task force meetings and discussions and work. So I got to meet her through that. And when I went to finally apply, she happened to be, you know, I think one of her children, her son at the time and continues to live in California, she happened to be in the area and she just came over to the lab. It was in the Clark Center. I'm assuming it's the same place where y'all are now in the third floor of the Clark Center where there's like <laughs> yeah. a yeah, can you picture like where the sink is? <laughs> there's a long table or at least there used to be. Yeah, so she and I sat there. there. So if anyone wants to find us at work, that's where we are. <laughs> so I had my interview <laughs> with Diane. It was great because she she was coming to me. I didn't have to make the trip out to Maryland. She just happened to be there. But I did. There were two, actually, two mentors. Diane Damiano was one and Mark Hallett was another. And his interview or my interview with him was by phone. And so we had decided that I would join. I think that the two of them at NIH, Mark and Diane, had an interest in collaborating independent of me. And my coming was sort of a way for them to do that. So it was sort of a nice moment for all three of us because everybody had an interest in that happening. So I, I did that for three years. And basically at the end of it, I hadn't thought of anything else but to apply for a faculty position. This is just sort of the, the plan that I had imagined that it would be. So my next step was to look for a faculty position. However, it was kind of restricted because I had to find a job in the DMV, in the DC, Maryland, Virginia area, because at this point now, oh, my, and I had my third child. So at the end of my postdoc, I was pregnant with my third child. So it was just too challenging to even consider another move. We were, we were really done moving at this point. It is hard. It is a really tough to have a faculty interview season where you can only look for jobs in that one city. So I was really 
lucky, I think, that Catholic University of America, which is in D.C., was looking for a biomedical engineering assistant professor, and they actually had an interest in someone with experience with pediatrics. So that this was like a really, I mean, crazy match for me. And this, again, was sort of through contact of one of my postdoc mentors, had gone to Catholic University and knew them there and was on the advisory board for that department. So so it worked out really well for me, actually, to be able to have that job right here and go through that full interview process and come out of it <laughs> with a job. So I started at Catholic University and I was there for about five years until I decided that was when I decided to make the move out of academia and into NIH. So I guess that was sort of where my career kind of took a a little bit of a turn. Was there any one thing that sort of made you make the switch or was it kind of just a a building of of multiple things? I think it was really, yeah, like a, a building of things and multiple things happening. And me also finally kind of slowing down enough to see what I really wanted to do, or even if that's not the right way to say it, maybe to check in and see whether I was really enjoying what I'm doing. I hadn't really considered that as a possibility or a requirement, which sounds kind of silly, right? What I realized was I felt a pull away from the specificity of doing research. I felt a pull, and not higher in like a better way, but higher in more of a, a pull back to a more broad perspective. The lifestyle didn't really suit me for some reason. It, it didn't energize me. I didn't enjoy writing grants. And I don't know that anyone does, but there was like nothing redeeming about it for me. And, and it was exhausting. I also had to teach a couple of classes every semester. So altogether, it just, it wasn't suiting me. And I, I didn't really... I, I couldn't really see myself continuing to do it. I think that's what was coming to me was I'm not, I don't regret that I've done this, but I don't know that I want to keep doing it. And so that feeling of pulling back and pulling away a little bit was something that I thought like public service could do. So working at NIH, it's really we're you know, we're civil servants and we serve whoever comes to us, whichever PIs come for funding and have an interest in trying to get an NIH grant. And so it's sort of like, a, I saw it as a really good way to help science move forward without having to do it. And as I talked to people who had made that change, as I talked to people who made the change to it or away from it, kind of getting all these perspectives. And I spent about a year doing that before I was really feeling like, okay, this is what I want to do. After doing that, I really felt like it spoke to me. It seemed like the people that I was speaking to who liked it, who enjoyed it, who continue to be in it for years were had a similar feeling to me, uh, the, what I was going through at that point. So it was really kind of a nice moment for me to realize that there are other things I could do. And the, the funny part is people had said that before. It wasn't like I didn't know these jobs existed, right? But, you know, sometimes you get stuck in your thing. And it takes kind of a moment of something being overwhelming to actually step back and assess. Yeah. I particularly like your reference to the energy levels of things that you were doing. Hannah and I took a class one time where we made these charts of every day throughout the week, everything that we did. And then you kind of organize like how much energy either you gain from that activity or you lose from that activity and like kind of seeing how if there's patterns in that and if things balance each other out 
And so when you're saying that pretty much all of the tasks you were doing were just like draining energy instead of energizing you, then that's when you knew that you needed to make a change. And so I was wondering what of the things that you do in your role now are the most energizing for you? Oh, uh, right now, I think one of the one of the things I enjoy is speaking with people, speaking with PIs and kind of learning about where they're coming from with their ideas, with their scientific ideas, also their institution, the climate at their institution, their research group, how big it is, what they're doing. So connecting with people in that way to get a sense of what is motivating them and what their needs are. I think it's a nice, I mean, it's still all focused on the science and what they want to do and how it fits with what the Institute wants to do. But there's a a lot of working with people that I enjoy where I am right now. Really cool that you can be diving into like different projects and like kind of switching those frameworks and perspectives that you're using on a much more rapid basis than I feel like you get to in typical academic setting. So Absolutely. I mean, the morning could be discussing a clinical trial, then the late morning is discussing a study with marmosets, and then the afternoon is discussing like a device development project. So it's really, it's really all over the place, but you're right. They're all connected and they're all different parts of stages of this thing we're trying to do. (laughs) We're trying to learn. Yeah, that's really cool. And maybe just for a little bit more specifics about like what your responsibilities encompass that might just help clarify sort of your role in things where you are right now. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I'm what is called a program director and each of us, and there are a number of us in the Institute that I'm in, but we each oversee a portfolio of awards that support research in different topics. So the topic that my portfolio supports is neural engineering. And this is largely preclinical work, but there are some studies, some clinical studies as well. And a lot of this is tech development or some of it is software development, developing devices that are invasive or non-invasive. And so basically I work with PIs before they submit applications if they have any questions about whether their application is suitable for our institute, is it suitable for this or that particular funding opportunity, sort of guiding them through the process of applying. Once they apply and it goes through review, so once it gets reviewed, it gets a score, that's when it kind of comes back to us in the program world where depending on how it's scored we it may or may not be recommended for funding and so there's a process by which each application is taken through different program reviews and administrative reviews and it goes to council where decisions are made about funding and then once those decisions are made and the PIs get word about whether they are going to be funded or not, they usually call me up right away and want to discuss they aren't being funded. How can I resubmit this? What can I focus on? Or if they are going to be funded, then we start to talk about the next steps for that. Some of the awards have a a little bit more program involvement where we create milestones that they they have to fulfill before getting the next year of funding. So that process goes on. I would work directly with the the PIs on developing what those milestones are. 
And so like that, we kind of work with the PIs through the entire stage of their award. Every year there's progress reporting. So we would be the ones who read and approve the progress reports. Sometimes the PI would change institutions or get new members on their team or people leave and all those little changes we can also help manage. And then separate from that kind of guidance, I guess, uh, with the with the PIs, we can also create new funding opportunities. If there's a topic that seems to be important, timely, and that we want more information on. Program directors also lead workshops on different topics of interest to the Institute. So, so these are some of the things that we do. Sounds really interesting. And it's, it's cool to hear about these things when we haven't really talked about someone that has a role like that on the podcast before. And so we are wondering, like, what advice would you give to someone who is excited by some of these things that you're talking about, about roles in the government or regulatory or policy? What kind of advice would you share? I would say talk to people. Talk to a few program directors. Talk to people in policy. Talk to people in review. And it's not as hard as one might think to find somebody that they're connected to because a lot of trainees will have mentors who know program directors. People, you know, will probably also know people in review. And as you start developing your network, I think slowly you'll find more and more people that you can talk to. So I think that the the best thing, the advice I'd give is to just talk to people who are doing the things that you might consider doing. Hear about their path, hear about their day-to-day, hear about if they've moved on from there, why did they leave, and maintain these people in your network. You never know when you're going to see them somewhere. And it's always good to kind of understand like the full web of where people are. Conferences can be a really great way to meet program staff. For example, Society for Neuroscience, a huge number of us go there every year. And we have a booth down on the exhibitor area. And we have like time slots where you can sign up to talk to any of us. So those kinds of opportunities probably exist at other conferences as well. And I would say go and talk to them just to see what they do. It's all mysterious until you talk to someone and then you think, oh, is that all? <laughs> I could do that. <laughs> I'm always a proponent for talking to people, but I think that even me knowing that about myself, it's still hard to like just break that barrier sometimes and go up to someone, especially at a big conference or something like that. You're a little intimidated. I've seen that that booth at the Society for Neuroscience and everyone's like, looks really nice, looks really put together. And like, I think I remember my first one being intimidated, but then as you go back more and more and becomes a little bit more normal. I agree. I mean, I totally understand that. And I've also felt that way. And in certain new environments continue to feel that way. But if I were to go to an industry event, I might be a little quiet because I'm not one of them and I don't know everything. But I think really it's it's just more exposure makes you more comfortable. And the best is if you have like a person who can connect you and maybe go with you or just prep you. It is a tough process to kind of get out of your shell, but it's usually worth it. Yeah. Yeah. And you always learn something, which is really nice. Yeah. And at the very least, something about yourself. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Okay. So I just want to go to our last couple of questions here. I think this is one of my favorite questions to ask. We've talked a lot about your different career paths, where you came from in biomechanics, what your interests have been and what your role is now. But along this whole journey, can you tell us about a time where you experienced either a research or some kind of work failure? And can you share 
if your perspective changed? And if so, what did you learn from that experience? Sure. Uh, I think that is a great question because there's probably way more failures than there are successes. So it's in some sense, you could spend more time talking about this one as well. I guess, yeah, there have been numerous and some of them, I think I've probably just, I know I've tried to stamp out (laughs) of my mind a little bit, but I think one of the hardest things for me was just getting rejections on grants because you know, you put so much of yourself into it and it's not just your time and sitting at your keyboard and wrecking your carpal tunnel syndrome and all that, but it's like the mental focus and the energy that you put in. And, you know, it it feels personal because it's an idea of yours that you've been working with. And that was sort of a generally a hard thing for me to go through. And I think the biggest thing, and most people will probably say this, Doing, reaching out to people in advance, getting feedback on your ideas and talking aloud about them, not keeping them to yourself and kind of trying to write it all by yourself. It really helps. And it really does, especially for junior faculty, I think it is nice to have a little bit of a team, even though you're trying to do your independent research program and you're trying to build it up. It really does help to have a couple of people to bounce ideas off of, even if it's a different department or some kind of correlated subject that might not be exactly the center of what you're thinking about. And I think I went in trying to do everything myself at the beginning. It makes it a lot harder. So I I feel like that was probably like my most heartbreaking (laughs) work failures. Yeah, I feel like so much of our work as academics is like, feels very personal, like our identity is somehow tied to that, because we do put so much of ourselves, I think, into it. Right, right. It's very difficult to just sort of be outside of that and kind of look at the ideas as an independent thing, not as an owned thing. It all depended on you because it happens often where you'll be thinking of something and then you'll read a paper that someone wrote in 1986 and you're like, what? Are you kidding me? That was my idea, but there he did it. You know, it's hard (laughs) to see that. None of these ideas are ours. The ideas exist. Everything is existing out there. We're just noticing them and bringing them to words. It's out there. So that whole feeling of I did it, I thought of it is clearly important for professional growth. The heart of it, that's that's not the right spirit. It exists and I'm just coming to it. I'm just putting words on it. That's pretty interesting because I think sometimes too, like you think of something and you're like, oh, I'm sure somebody already thought of that. But maybe like the thinking of it is less important than actually doing something about it and yeah, either building something or like actually, I guess, like making something that's going to be able to fix that. Yeah, that's true. I think, I mean, on the one hand, sometimes people have already done what you wanted to do. On the other hand, you think they have, and you just sit on a really great idea that you should just go with. Right. Yeah, that's true. So also, I guess then being kind of on the other side of that process, you know, instead of applying to these grants, you're now deciding which researchers to give these grants to. So how has your perspective on that process sort of changed with your position now? Yeah, it is really a a different perspective. Well, I mean, I think for the most part, it's really the review, the reviewers that decide that have the biggest say in what the outcome will be. And there isn't, we try in program not to do too much of that 
secondary scientific review because our role is more to bring that application through its full process, not to be the the scientific review. But since we do deal directly with the PIs, we have the relationship with them. I think it's just made me a lot more compassionate, a lot more understanding. I can feel what they feel like when they reach out to me. I mean, many PIs don't want to call their program director. Like it's a big... I don't know, they, they feel a distance or formality or something because I had felt that way and I remembered that feeling. And so I, I think it try my best to be open, welcoming. I think it makes a difference to have been in that position before. And I think it also, when there are decisions that we can make, it's easier having been on that side to recognize that there are often multiple factors that are going into why this particular PI has requested a budget in this way or why they need this part to happen because they're, they have people in their lab that, that they're supporting who require their support. So I think it's just made me a lot more compassionate and aware of what the issues are that drive people. Yeah. Well, thank you. Really awesome that you've been able to see both sides of that coin and, and just, yeah, thank you for sharing all of your experiences around that. Absolutely. I'm happy to. This has been really great. And I think we're going to tee up for our last question now, which is looking to the future. What are you most excited about for the future of biomechanics? I think I'm most excited about a more diverse workplace. It's changing. Things are changing so much. I think biomechanics has generally been a pretty balanced workplace as compared to other fields of engineering that I've been in. But, you know, I think the just making sure that different voices are heard will bring more diverse ways of thinking, better methodologies, more robust methodologies that apply across a broader range of people. And I think now's the the time when we can make changes in that way. It's no longer strange. It's no longer kind of a new concept. So I think now is the time when it will really take off and improve the quality of the work we do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. Like I love seeing more and more of that in our communities and on larger scales as well. And I don't think anyone's actually said that as an answer for to this question. So thanks for thanks I'm glad for to that. shake things up. <laughs> yeah, no, it's usually people are excited about some kind of like technology or <laughs> something, but I like bringing it back to the people that are actually involved because that's really where these ideas and perspectives and all of the things you talked about are generated from. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for talking with us and hopefully that wasn't too scary. <laughs> no, you're so approachable and I appreciate you for inviting me. This has been a nice experience. Yeah, thank you so much. This has been great. We learned a lot and I'm excited to share these new ideas and advice with the listeners. So thank you. Absolutely. Take care. Research fails. The best segment that we have here. Just kidding. That interview was awesome. <laughs> Research fails. Yes, it does. So I feel like it's funny. Usually it's hard to think of research fails. And at first it was a little bit hard to think of them for this episode, but then I realized that I feel like I'm more cognizant of my fails now that I like only sit in one room. I don't know why that's true, but like 
maybe because I just don't have all the distractions of moving around all these different places. But now that I'm just in my one place all the time, for some reason, I'm like, oh, yeah, I actually do fail a lot. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Maybe because you're like, yeah, because you're always like moving around and thinking about so many things. But now you like, yeah, <laughs> if you have a fail, you're like, well, I'm just gonna have to sit here with that. Yeah. <laughs> yep. You like walk out, come back in and you're like, nope, still there. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to share the fail that you, you sent me a screenshot of this fail that one of your friends sent and it was like, just so cute. And I feel like even though it's not technically biomechanics, we should talk about it. Yeah. I think like your butterfly boom fact, it has a deeper message that like, we <laughs> we're all about the deeper <laughs> messages here. <laughs> Okay, so this is a text from one of my friends. She's a school teacher. And so she says, I have bus duty at dismissal time. And she's summoned onto a bus that was about to leave because someone is crying in the back. Some kids are announcing, she lost her scrunchie. She said her mom's going to kill her. I'm sure that was an exaggeration, right? Like, obviously, that's just how we feel when we're kids and we do something wrong. Yeah, it um, wasn't an exaggeration, but they probably didn't feel like it was an exaggeration. That's true. Everything feels big <laughs> when you're a kid. And I mean, I think these were like really important scrunchies to her. So I can understand the horror that she's facing. Okay. So my friend says, so I get to the girl in question, whose long blonde hair is in two ponytails with blue scrunchies. I ask what the problem is, and her response is, well, I thought I lost my scrunchies, but then I realize they are in my hair. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like this happens, like, with sunglasses and, like, other things, like, you're holding your phone, but I just love that it's, like, scrunchies and that they're just, like, in her hair, like, it's just so cute. Right, like, she has, she can only have two ponytails if the scrunchies are in her hair. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I just feel like, but you totally know that feeling of just, like, complete desperation and just, like, oh, no, this is the worst, and, the answer sitting right in front of you. So I feel like lately it's definitely, definitely relate to this poor little girl with her not lost, lost scrunchies. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Have you had, well, you said you have had fails or like have noticed some fails. Do you want to share any of those? Sure. I think the, the danger or not dangerous, probably the good thing about being home and like, I don't know, for some reason, I just feel like, being in one place my brain like is also in one place and then yeah can like it kind of is better at thinking of all the different things that are going on at once so we were actually working on a project in like one sort of different sphere and I realized that from what we were doing in that project that like something I had done in a different project was actually not correct but it was super helpful because then I could go back and like look at how I was analyzing in the previous project and try to compare to the the current. So I feel like it's actually really good because normally I wouldn't, I don't think I would be as good at making that connection for some reason. So just having the time to think and reflect has been good in that way, I think, to recognize those those mistakes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. How about you? Have you run into Um, anything? I actually like don't fail. (laughs) 
<laughs> no. Have I run into anything? That's a hilarious question because yesterday I literally ran into something with my car. And guess what? It was another car. <laughs> but it wasn't, it was like, luckily it wasn't like a real accident or anything like that. I just, I just did a little swipey swipe on the car <laughs> next to me <laughs> in the parking lot. And yeah, that was not a very good feeling. The problem is that this spot has been empty for eight months and no one has parked in it. And my car is like really quite large. And then this car is very tiny. And I didn't even, I can't even see the car when I'm in my car. So I'm like, no, so one really it's that here. car's fault. So like, I don't want to place blame here, but it wasn't me. <laughs> No, it was totally me, but I'm like pulling out and I'm like turning and I like feel something and I'm like, what did I even hit? Like, there's nothing to hit. And then there's nothing I in the spot. Get out and I'm like, oh, wow. Yep, that's a car. So, but you oh, know what? No. That's why I pay for car insurance. So, but actually, this really was like a revelation to me. <laughs> I feel like I, this is embarrassing, but. Like when I was younger and I was like, I was driving like my parents' car. Right. Mm -hmm. And then like, I'm just like a very accident prone human, whether it's like me tripping and falling or me like bumping into things with a vehicle. But <laughs> I like, if I hit something with the car, I would like be devastated, like knowing that I had to tell like my parents and like they were going to be so disappointed in me. But now I'm like, well, I pay for my car and my car insurance. And like, this is my problem that I, I will have fixed myself as an adult. So it made me feel a little bit better knowing that I will be, take full responsibility for this. And I don't have to like stress anyone else out other than the uh, other person who I've severely inconvenienced, <laughs> but anyway. Uh, I feel like, <laughs> <laughs> well, I love how you, like, I don't know, I feel like you're naturally altruistic in that way of, like, you're, you're excited about being an adult because it means you don't have to stress other people out here. <laughs> I feel and, like uh, that was just always the worst part of, like, making this mistake was, like, oh, God, I'm gonna have to tell my parents about that. <laughs> <laughs> when they say, we're not mad, but we're disappointed. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes. Oh. The ones you never want to hear. Right. Oh, man. Well, I think one of our mutual friends' definitions of being an adult is that you're an adult when you realize that you can bake a cake for yourself, even not on your birthday or a special occasion. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can guess who that is. <laughs> I like that. Um, so go bake a cake for yourself and really <laughs> just relish your adulthood. <laughs> Maybe I should bake a cake for the person whose car I hit. I feel like that cake never goes wrong, you know? Like people always <laughs> love cake. <laughs> Maybe they're like gluten free. <laughs> and they can give it to their dog. <laughs> I'm not baking a cake so that it can be fed to a dog. I bake good cakes, okay? Are you saying that it would be wasted on a dog? <laughs> Just because you have a cat, Melissa, now doesn't mean you get to eat on <laughs> This is true. I have always been like, oh, I'm a dog person. And now I got a cat. And I'm like, oh, my God. I, my cat is the cutest cat. <laughs> my cat's better than all the cats. <laughs> 
The cat is just basically the best dog. Yeah, it's true. Well, he likes to play fetch, so that's, like, close enough to a dog. My actual dog never played fetch with me, and I was always so upset. So maybe I'm just doing it wrong. Maybe I need a cat. Uh, yeah, and, like, we just live in this in an apartment, so it's just better. It's just better to go with a kitty. But he's been fun. We adopted him. He's, like, a year old, and... He's a little cutie. He wouldn't come out of the bed for the first, like, two weeks out from under the bed. But now he is thriving. What's, can you tell everyone his name? His name is JT. That is the name he came with. So we just stuck with it. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well. (laughs) Now that everyone knows my life's problems. (laughs) Now that we just took a deep dive into Melissa's personal life, <laughs> let's end this segment of research fails. <laughs> Thank you for sharing all of that, Melissa. I think it's great. It's really yeah. great. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. It's fine. Well, anyways, thanks for listening to this episode of Biomechanics on Our Minds. I'm Melissa. And I'm Hannah, and we just want to thank our awesome interviewee, Sahana, today, and our sponsors, International Society of Biomechanics, who really have been great supporters of the podcast, as well as Peter Washington, who gave us all of the wonderful music and sounds you hear. Yeah, and if you want, you can follow us on Twitter at BiomechanicsOOM. And like all the podcasts I listen to, like ask people to review them on Apple Podcasts and like give five star rating. So if you're really into that, you can totally do that. I'm not exactly sure why they say it helps, but apparently it does. So support your favorite biomechanics podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And if you want to submit a research fail, you have an idea of someone to interview or you want to get involved in the student voices segment, you too could be a boom interviewer. Feel free to email us at biomechanicsonourminds at gmail.com. Biomechanics off our minds. minds.